You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Open our eyes, God, so that we might behold wondrous things from your instruction. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I have a problem. I know that for some of you that wouldn't surprise you, but I have a problem. I, I have a serious problem. It's a productivity problem. Now, I know it's not actually that I struggle to be productive. No, my problem is that I can actually almost too easily become addicted to productivity. It's a bit embarrassing to admit, you know, there was actually a time when I would only ever read non-fiction books so that I could develop better as a lawyer. In fact, there was a time in my life where I'd uh, read books on discrimination law before bed just so that I could maximize every moment of every day. I had, and yes, I know I still might have, a slight productivity problem. Now, if you're even remotely like me, and you're so easily addicted to productivity, I'm willing to venture a guess that you also have a problem with prayer. It's not just a productivity problem, it's a prayer problem. Because let's face it, what's productive about prayer? I mean, prayer feels like the least productive activity of all, doesn't it? Why be on my knees praying when I could be on my feet working? Why feel like I'm talking to a blank wall that won't answer when I could just go and help someone else by talking to a real person who can actually do something? You see, prayer, it it honestly feels like the least productive use of time, doesn't it? And yet, as we'll see in the events of Acts 6, God calls his shepherds to pray. Not, Not just to pray by the side, no, he calls us to pray, if anything, as one of our two most important responsibilities. He calls pastors to grow the church through word and prayer. And actually, as your shepherds, One of the best ways we can love you is by praying for you. And we're going to see that play out over three scenes, and then we'll hear two messages for us today. Got it? Three scenes, two messages. Scene one, a fracturing church. A fracturing church. Well, we all love to be part of something exciting, don't we? Well, what could be more exciting than seeing people come to faith in the Lord Jesus? I I know how many of you have been praying for the salvation of your brother, your sister, your, your parent or your friend. Well, just imagine for a moment that suddenly they came to faith. I mean, how exciting would that be? Well, if you think that's exciting, just imagine being part of the early church here in Acts. Just imagine, right, in Acts 1.8, the Lord Jesus sends out his apostles. They're supposed to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, that they're moving out in concentric circles, right from the epicenter of the gospel all the way to the farthest reaches of the world. And if you were part of the early church, that's exactly what you would be witnessing with your own eyes. Track with me, right? In Acts 2.41, about 3,000 people were added to the disciples. Then in verse 47, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Then in chapter 4, verse 4, 
Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. It would be like, not just your brother, your sister, your parent, or your friend coming to faith. No, it would be like as if everyone around you is coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. It would be remarkably exciting, wouldn't it? That's something of the situation of the church in Acts 6, right? As the disciples were increasing in number. I mean, don't we all pray for a revival like that? Don't we all long for a movement of the Spirit just like that in a city just like ours? But we all know, don't we, that rapid growth can come with real challenges. It might be like shooting a rocket into the stratosphere, right? But that rocket is at serious risk of breaking apart. Look at what's happening in verse 1. There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. You, you see, the early church, it might be growing, it might be reaching people from every tribe, just like we want to. But the rapid growth, the increasing diversity is actually threatening their unity. Let me explain. That the Hellenistic Jews are Jews who only speak Greek. And the Hebraic Jews mainly speak Aramaic. Now, now both groups are ethnically Jewish, but their difference in language brings a difference in culture. It's almost a bit like the difference between a mainland Chinese person and a Malaysian Chinese person, or, or an Indian person from the UK, or an Indian person from India. Our ethnicities might be the same, but our cultures couldn't be more different. And with that difference comes potential conflict. You see, that's what's happening in Acts, in Acts chapter 6. When, when it comes time to distribute the food among the Christian widows, the vulnerable women, the Greek-speaking widows are being overlooked. They're being neglected. They're being discriminated against. The church is all exciting on the outside. It's growing rapidly on the outside, but it faces an existential threat on the inside. You see, this is a justice problem, this is an equity problem, and this is a unity problem. It doesn't matter if the rocket blasts past the stratosphere and reaches the exosphere straight into outer space, if the rocket itself just breaks apart. And it doesn't matter if the church might reach the ends of the earth, if the church itself breaks apart before it even gets there. Scene one, a fracturing church. Scene two, a surprising solution. A surprising solution. When a problem arises at work, let me ask, what's the SOP? What's the standard operating procedure? You normally escalate the problem, right? You fly it up the flagpole. You bring it to the attention of your manager or your, or your director. Now, if you are a manager or director, or you're the team leader, you'll know, right, so often, rule 101 of leadership, so often, well, this isn't the rule, but it's the reality, so often the urgent outweighs the important. The urgent outweighs the important. We spend all of our time putting out spot fires, and not enough of our time actually conducting controlled burn-offs. The urgent so often outweighs the important. 
Well, for the apostles in Acts, there couldn't be a more urgent spot fire than what we find blazing in chapter 6. And yet, look at what the apostles say. It would not be right for us to give up on preaching the word of God, to wait on tables. Now, sounds a bit demeaning, doesn't it? It sounds as if the problem facing the Greek-speaking widows is as trivial as, I don't know, your waiter delivering the wrong order. But it's not. You see, to wait on tables is literally to serve tables. This isn't like a customer not receiving their meal on time. No, this is like a refugee not receiving their aid. It's not as if the apostles are handballing the issue as if it doesn't somehow matter. No, look at what they do. They appoint seven godly men to care for these vulnerable widows. You see, the word deacon, it's never mentioned in this passage. But classically, the church has looked at Acts chapter 6 to describe the work of deacons in the church. A deacon is literally a servant, a table waiter, as it were. Just like these seven godly men. They're not primarily responsible to teach the word or to lead the church or to somehow hold the elders accountable. No, they unify the church. They care for the needy. They support the shepherds through providing practical acts of service. And it's a telling illustration, isn't it? That your shepherds are actually not enough. Your shepherds are not enough. We need the full complement of pastors, elders, deacons, and everyday leaders and believers to grow the church and to advance the gospel. Well, we don't just need shepherds to preach the word and lead the church and reflect God's image. No, we need more than that. We need deacons, ministry team leaders, BLT leaders, and we need one another to care for our everyday needs and unite as the people of God. Just think about all those things that your shepherds just might not have the time to do that we can do for one another. We need each other to cook meals for a young mum who's still learning how to raise a child for the very first time. We we need each other to drive the interstate uni student who, who moves to Melbourne and has no friends. We need each other to actually encourage forgiveness, correct sin, resolve conflicts, heal hurts, Reconcile relationships. You see, as one of your pastors, I wish, no, I actually don't wish we could all do it because we're human. We aren't the chief shepherd. We cannot do it alone. You see, we need your help to unify the body. We need your help to advance the gospel. We need your help to grow the church. And can I take this moment to publicly thank God for the work of our deacons, for Cassie, for Claudia, for Jeremy, for Mark, Sine, and previously for Noonbit as well. You see, as our church shifts to being led by a council of pastors and elders, our deacons are going to stop exercising many of the responsibilities that they've shouldered over the last three years. But I want you to know, these men and women, these godly men and women have worked tirelessly to serve the body in countless ways. So please thank God for them. Friends, I wonder if you realize that the decision of the apostles, it's a bit surprising, isn't it? And actually, if you were part of the original church, that early church, it might have felt even a little bit wrong. Because just as I said before, for many leaders, the urgent outweighs the important. 
So surely you'd think that an issue as serious as discrimination, as injustice, as inequity, would demand the apostles' personal attention. If the cultural majority of our church was actively discriminating against a minority and excluding them from the everyday necessities of our church life, wouldn't you expect your pastors to get involved? Wouldn't you demand that your shepherds step in? And yet, the apostles delegate this task to a different group of people. Look at what they say. It would not be right for us to give up or literally to reallocate our time away from preaching the word of God to wait on tables. No, our first responsibility is to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Friends, can you hear what they're saying here? Yes, this issue in front of us is urgent. Yes, we can see that it really matters. But we, the apostles say, must not allow the urgent to outweigh the important. No, as for us apostles, we must devote ourselves, busy ourselves, sink the bulk and the best of our time into what matters most. Friends, can I suggest to you, the two biggest value statements of your life are your budget and your diary. Your budget and your diary. See, if you want to find out what matters most to you, look at how you spend your money and look at how you spend your time. Well, here, to put it simply, the apostles are managing their diary. They're deciding how best to spend their time. And they're saying, look, what matters most to us is not the service of food, but the ministry of, or literally the service of the word. And we need to devote ourselves to being deep in not just the word, but to being deep in prayer. It's remarkable, isn't it? Just look at verse 4 carefully. If I were writing verse 4, I would write, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer which is so often how I memorize that verse. But, but the author, the Apostle Luke writes, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, I don't want to squeeze too much, squeeze too much juice from the lemon, but to the extent that word order matters, that's telling, isn't it? It doesn't so much diminish the importance of the word, but it elevates the priority of prayer. Just think about how counterintuitive this is, right? In the face of real injustice, in the face of practical inequity, the apostles respond to the church, those seven guys will look after you. But as for us, the best use of our time is to pray for you. If you have a productivity problem like me, we will never do what the apostles are doing here, would we? I mean, why pray for the widows when I could just go and provide for them? No, let's face it, prioritizing prayer almost seems irresponsible, doesn't it? It seems a bit insensitive, impractical. Isn't it just being religious at the expense of being realistic? But friends, I suspect that our impulse reveals what we really believe about prayer, doesn't it? That deep down, many of us believe that prayer is not productive. In my uh, former professional life, my work day, my day was measured 
according to six-minute billable units. And I would have to account for every six minutes of my time. 9 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Five units. Drafting employment contract. 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. 15 units. Attending client meeting and drafting retainer letter. And when your life is ruled by timesheets, you feel a bit guilty, don't you, for wasting your time? You know that someone's always watching. At the end of the month, your partner's going to come and look at your timesheet and go, have you met target? And, and you look there, what have you written? 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., 90 units, business development, which really just means reading the age online. Well, how would you feel if you saw your pastor's timesheet and it read 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m., 15 units, pray. I mean, something in us goes, why, why would you pay someone to pray? <laughs> but friends, however unproductive it may seem, it is the job of your pastors to pray for you. Because in reality, nothing can be more productive than prayer. And we see that priority right throughout Paul's letters. It's as if Paul passes his churches by praying for them. Track with me through it, Romans 1.9. I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 1 Corinthians 1.4. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 1.17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Uh, Ephesians 3.16, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. Philippians 1.3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Colossians 1.9, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. And 2 Thessalonians 1.11, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling. Friends, you get the message, can you see? Paul passes the churches through, the prayer, through prayer and the word. And God is calling your pastors and elders to grow the church through prayer and the word as well. Scene two, a surprising solution. Scene three, a growing church, a growing church. Well, the problem's been resolved, hasn't it? The threat has been diffused, crisis averted. And we read in verse seven that the word of God spread the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Thank God, the rocket's intact. Its structural integrity is secure and what does it do? It continues on its flight path beyond the exosphere and into outer space. How does the gospel advance? How does the church grow? How are sinners saved? How are saints sanctified? Through prayer and preaching. Through seeking God's face and proclaiming God's word. 
And the seven godly men who care for those widows and the oppressed, they free up the apostles to do what matters most. Friends, uh, what might we learn from these three scenes, these three scenes about the role of pastors and elders in our church today? Two lessons. Firstly, prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us simply do not believe in the power of prayer. And if we do not believe in the power of prayer, doesn't it reveal that we do not believe in the power of God? The truth is, I often pray as if to a God who can answer, but probably won't. But prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Prayer grows the church because God alone can grow the church. Prayer saves sinners because God alone can save sinners. And if God alone can save, then surely, surely, There is no hope for our world, no hope for sinners, no hope for us, unless we turn to our God in prayer. But if we turn to our God in prayer, if we seek his face, if we plead for his mercy, friends, there is infinite hope for our world. There is unlimited hope for sinners, and yes, there is an eternal hope for us as well. Because our God is powerful and our God is merciful. He is powerful to save and he is passionate to save. He wants to answer your prayers for mercy. You see, if you're not a Christian, God is powerful and passionate to answer your prayer for forgiveness. If you turn to him in prayer, if you repent of your life without him, if you commit your life to him, God will forgive you. He will save you, no ifs, no buts. He will give you the new life, the second chance and the fresh start that he promises. He will extend to you the power of God for salvation. If only you turn to him in prayer. You see, the one prayer that God will always say yes to is, please forgive me. Fellow Christian, brother and sister, can you see that prayer is powerful to save sinners, to advance the gospel and to grow the church? And right throughout Acts, it's the word and prayer that are, in many ways, the joint catalyst for the mission of God in the world. That the church grows, the gospel advances, sinners are saved through prayer and preaching. But if I can can confess, so often churches like ours might remember to preach, but we forget to pray. And when we do that, we risk deceiving ourselves. That somehow sinners are saved, the gospel advances, the church grows, not by God's power, but by our persuasiveness. No, the church will not grow by preaching alone. For the word and prayer are two sides of the same coin. I love it. It said that Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, uh, would ascend the pulpit to preach the word and with every step he would pray. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
You see, prayer is the power by which we receive God's words. It is the means by which the word goes out to save sinners, advance the gospel and grow the church. Prayer is the humble act of turning to the God who alone can save. Pleading with that God that he would do what he loves to do. That he might save sinners. You see, friends, prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Secondly, prayer is our priority. Prayer is our priority. Well, if some of us do not believe in the power of prayer, I suspect that just as many of us do not believe in the priority of prayer. And it's reflected in our diaries, isn't it? Now, I'm not talking about your actual diary or your actual Google Calendar, but let me suggest, if your calendar accurately reflected how we actually spend our time, what might it reveal about our priority of prayer? So many of us pray as a last resort instead of a first response. So isn't it a bit challenging then to read that the Apostle's first impulse is to safeguard the priority of prayer? That they resist reacting to the urgent in order that they might devote themselves to the important. They say no to what is good in order to say yes to what is best. You see, for the apostles, being deep in prayer is the most important, the most practical, and the most productive task at all. And can I suggest that one of the best ways that your pastors can love you is to pray for you. The response of the apostles, it tells us at least something, doesn't it, about the priority of prayer for your shepherds. It at least indicates in some small way something about how we should allocate our time and what we should be saying yes to and what we should be saying no to. You see, there will be times in our church life where the most natural impulse on part of members will be to do what we do, to escalate the problem, fly it up the flagpole, call the pastor and the elder. And there will be times where that will be the most appropriate course of action. But in that moment, it may be the case that the most loving act for your shepherd would be to say these words. Brother, sister, that is a serious and important task. But actually, the best person to help you might be your BLT leader. It might be that deacon. Or it might be that church member. Because as your shepherd, I love you best by devoting my time to being deep in the word and prayer. There will be times where they may be the words that are wisest. And friends, as we welcome Andrew in two weeks and appoint our first elder as well, let me say, the best way in which we can love you is by devoting the bulk and the best of our time to praying for you and to applying the gospel to your hearts. Because sinners are saved, and saints are sanctified through the word and prayer. There will be times in our church life where the best person to help you with a practical need, a relational issue, or a complex decision may not be us. It may be a BLT leader or other godly people in our church family. 
Now, let me say on a personal level, part of me does wish that I could personally help you in any way that I could. But you see, friends, it's actually not about me. And it's not about your shepherds. It's about the God who alone can save and sanctify you, who then gifts you his shepherds, but also the church as your body to lovingly care and support you and sanctify you. And it means that we love you best when, in the words of Mark Dever, we preach, pray, love, and stay. The other night at our online Ask Me Anything, I was asked the question, Adam, what will the pastors and elders actually do at meetings of the church council? And I'll say now what I said then. We will pray for the flock. For that is what the Lord Jesus has called us to do. To care for and grow the church by being deep in the word and prayer. And at a very practical level, that's why we've just created an email address specifically for that purpose. You see, if you're a member of our church and you'd like your pastors and elders to pray for you, all you have to do from today is email us, pray at crossandcrown.org.au. It'll be confidential. It'll be shared only among the pastors, the elders, and our trainees. And when we meet each month, we will love you best by praying for you. So please avail yourself of that and let us serve you through prayer. Friends, we do all of this for one reason and one reason alone. And it is actually the very same reason that we started with five weeks ago. And that reason is this. The Lord Jesus Christ is your chief shepherd and he alone can perfectly care for your soul. And as we, your under-shepherds, pray for you, we are seeking the care of your soul from the only one who can do for you what we cannot. We are humbling ourselves as mere sheepdogs who guide and guard the sheep towards their chief shepherd. You see, the pastor as prayer sits at the heart of our call for it is the greatest acknowledgement that we are not your saviour and that Jesus alone is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus alone is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. So let me ask, will we be a prayerful church? Will we prayerfully submit ourselves to the care of our under-shepherds, but ultimately, and most importantly, will we submit ourselves to the perfect care of the Lord Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd? Brothers and sisters, will you join with me now in praying for our church? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you alone can save. You alone can save sinners. You alone can advance the gospel. You alone can grow the church. And so we humbly come before you, praying for one another, praying that you might give the growth. As a church family, as we long to see every tribe worship Christ as King, as we take step by step towards that Revelation 7 vision of people from every nation gathered around the throne, as we reach our world so that it might know, love, and live for Jesus, we know, God, that outside of your Spirit, 
we can do nothing. And so we come before you on our knees, seeking your face, pleading, God, for our church, our city, our nation, and our world, that, God, in your kindness, you might do what you do best. You might do what you delight in doing. You might delight to answer our prayers that people from every nation and tribe might bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen.